Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello, Frank Conway here, and I'm so excited to have our featured guest, Naomi Brockwell, join us on Economic Rockstar. Hi, Naomi. I've been so looking forward to speaking with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Frank. It's great to be here. Naomi is an opera singer, filmmaker and actress and studied commerce at the University of Western Australia. Currently residing in New York, Naomi also runs her own company, Rainsworth Productions, and is a fellow at the Moving Picture Institute. Naomi speaks five languages, plays six musical instruments, and of course is a gold medal winning Irish dancer. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi is on the advisory council for the Mankell Foundation for Economic Education and is the always effervescent face of Bitcoin Girl 2. Well, Naomi, it doesn't stop there either. There are still many more accomplishments to mention, but we'd probably need a second show for all of that. <laughs> I've, I've given our listeners an overview, so maybe please take a moment and tell us about you personally, just in case I missed something there. Gosh, well, I mean, I, I would say that the two er- main areas of interest for me are economics. Um, and Well, actually, they're, they're, well, it, I, if I'm going to break it down to two, I would say economics and film are my two great passions. So I'm very much interested in monetary policy, which leads into the whole Bitcoin thing. I am very much interested in film. Yeah, I think that I've done a, a, I'm involved with a lot of organizations that have are very directly linked to, to both of those those areas. And it's just, yeah, a lot of great organizations out there that I've been really, really pumped to be involved with. There are a lot of things that I mentioned there actually has been mind-boggling that you actually could fit all of this in, a, in your <laughs> life. I, I may be quite biased here, but an Irish dancer? gold medal do you have irish roots you know what i my family was actually involved with irish pubs so (laughs) irish culture has always been a huge part of my upbringing um guinness you know and baileys are my two favorite drinks um i I love irish music uh and irish dancing is just so much fun and so when i was a teenager i really got involved with that with the wa academy of irish dance and yeah I, i i pursued that pretty heavily, did a lot of competitions and haven't, haven't done it for a while there. So now I, I think I'd be, um, uh, I'd have a lot of trouble even touching my toes these days. Okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as nimble as I, as I once was, but I used to have a ball with it. You have all the different forms of dance too, but you mentioned Irish dancing. So I, I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> that that's your favorite dance. I, it is, you know, I, it's actually funny. I started, um, I, I went to this academy in, in Western Australia called the WA Academy of Dance and Drama uh, or the Entertainment Factory. And, um, and I started learning tap dancing there. And you think, well, Irish dancing and tap dancing, they're really similar. But you know what? I just couldn't figure out how to work my arms in tap dancing. I was like, Irish dancing, you just don't need them. No. So that was a, a, a big uh, difficulty to overcome when I started other forms of dancing. Huh. Like figuring out coordination of actually using all your limbs. Unless you're Michael Flatley from Riverdance. So. Oh, and he does what he wants. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am just absolutely gobsmacked. Do you have a quote or a mantra that you find very important to you or your outlook? in life? Um, you know what? I, I love quotes. I love affirmations. I use a lot of them. I am a subscriber to Louise Hayes' uh, daily positive affirmations and a bunch of mailing lists. Um, I just really like people who are inspiring and I like reading their biographies. And I guess a, a mantra that I would live by is that 
I think we I think we really underestimate what we can achieve. And if we can remember that so much more is possible than we may think, I think that's a, a good way to way to live because it just encourages you to, to press your boundaries and explore new horizons and really see what your potential is. Really try to fulfill your potential. I think that's the greatest thing that a human can do. I think that we, we just try and figure out what our potential is and try to achieve that. You mentioned that your love is in films and economics. That's correct. I, I just want to see where the transition occurred from an opera singer, actor, <laughs> you know, into film and economics. And can you share with us the moment that actually began your passion for economics? I, I can, actually. I mean, I, I did study economics uh, at university in Western Australia. Um, however, it just didn't stick. It, I found it so boring. It was awful. So I you know, did a degree in acting. I traveled around Europe for a year. I did a degree in classical music. Um, I moved to New York as an opera singer and really just wanted to live here for a couple of months, study with some really great people. And then I decided to stay here because the training here was amazing. But you know what? I started going to this thing called uh, Junto, and they have all of these great economics speakers come and speak at this, this event. It's run by um, the very famous trader called Victor Niederhofer. He's just a, a, a fantastic guy. Oh, yeah. And anyway, I saw this man called Gene Epstein talk, and he was talking about the housing crisis and the housing bubble. And he was so eloquent, and his talk was so interesting. I was fascinated by the things that he was saying, and I didn't know the first thing um, about the, the uh, economic crisis. And so just listening to him, I became incredibly intrigued. So I found out that Gene is actually the economics editor at Barron's. So he is a, you know, a very um, well-known economist and he's written, written books and he ha- is the, um, he does a lot with Barron's, writes for them. And so I just, I actually emailed him and I said, listen, can I have a copy of your slides? Cause I really loved your talk. And it ended up, we, we met at his office and I, asked him all of these questions that were just so intriguing to me. I was so curious about this topic. He gave me this giant reading list of all of these books, including, you know, Hayek and Mises and Rothbard and all of these great texts. And I just went through and I read them all. So it was actually from him that he really got me so interested in this. And now we run this Austrian economics reading group together. Um, I, I'm always going over there discussing issues with him because I just find him so enlightening. So, that, yeah, that was really the turning point for me, hearing this talk and realizing that there's so much more to economic and so much more to the housing crisis and all of that than the mainstream media led on. And I really wanted to understand more about it. And I'm sure Gene, when he met you, he would have seen that possible glint in your eye regarding the <laughs> hunger and, uh, for more that economics because I was just going to ask uh, did you have to go through some initiation test or did he have to ask you questions in order to be um, <laughs> accepted uh, to be problem. accepted but it we seemed to be the other way around yeah, no, Gene is just the most amazing man, and he lives for educating people about this. He speaks all over the world at conferences. Um, he's always giving talks about economics, and so he actually relishes the opportunity uh, to talk to people about these issues, and especially people who really don't know much about it or people who disagree with him. Uh, he's a great person to really discuss these ideas with because he, um, he'll he always provide you a, a new way of looking at things, and I think that's really important whether or not you end up agreeing with him. I think um, he just really opens up this issue and um, 
pokes you in, in certain ways that, that inspires you to, to think and really analyse your own viewpoint. Uh, I think that's an extremely important outlook that you actually should have in terms, if you're a, a theorist or an empiricist yeah, in the economics yeah, field, definitely. because you, you just have to question some of these theories, do they actually work? Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about them in a little while when it comes to Bitcoins and maybe some of the criticism that's out there regarding this kind of structure that right, we have yeah, for sure. uh, this digital currency. But you mentioned some economists there. Do you have a, one particular favorite one economist? Oh, I know gosh. you mentioned your school is Austrian. Yeah, is there well, one particular? You know what? Gene has been the most influential on me, just chatting to him. Um, but apart from that, I mean, some of the first books I read were by Rothbard. I think he's just fantastic. Uh, I love Say. Um, I love Mises. I love Hayek. I mean, all of these economists I've just taken so much from as anyone would. I mean, they're, they're incredible, but they really have made such an incredible impact on my life. I can actually see the connection, especially with, say, Rothbard and Mises. They tend yeah. to talk a lot about money. Right, and exactly. Not in its fiat form. Yeah, yeah. And that but we should definition. actually have private ownership over our own money or wealth. Yeah, yeah. And Hayek uh, has talked about a lot about that as well. I um, One of the a really great, great books that, that I first read was What Has the Government Done to Our Money by Rothbard. And that was, that was a game changer because that really made me question the foundations of money and why we just presume that it should be a you know, government-run entity, why we believe that national currency should be a thing, uh, why we believe that this isn't something the private sector could handle much better. And I think think that that's what we've seen with the emergence of Bitcoin. This is the private sector seeing where the government has been lacking, um, where they've had no incentive to innovate um, the money supply. And there's been a monopoly on it. They've actually had to outlaw other tender and coerce people to use um, their sovereign currency. And we've seen the emergence of Bitcoin, which is a digital currency that is keeping up with the digital age, finally, um, and a global currency keeping up with the global marketplace. And that sort of innovation, I mean, that's inspired by people uh, outside of government. And, and that just shows you that people have started using this voluntarily through no coercion because Bitcoin has been specifically engineered as an ideal form of money. I mean, whether or not it's ideal is irrelevant to me. The fact that people are using it because they prefer it over uh, sovereign currency, that's, that's really interesting to me, using it of their own volition. Just, I'll take you a little bit back to what cryptocurrencies is, just in case mm-hmm. some of our listeners, uh, this might be new to them. It is a virtual currency, so what gets people confused about this is that they don't see the physical currency as such or right. the transactions and right. where's the money. And So if you want to kind of bring us a little bit back to what a cryptocurrency is, right. Bitcoin, well, and who was the elusive Satoshi Nakamoto? Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting idea that they, they don't trust it because it's not tangible. But if you think about it, I mean, today we live in a, in a primarily cashless society, um, all of our money exists in ones and zeros anyway. We, we generally won't use cash. We will use cards everywhere we go. Sometimes we'll use our phones to pay for things. So we're already in an era where, where currency is digital. What's exciting for me about Bitcoin, Bitcoin for in layman's terms is essentially money for the internet. It was designed to be money uh, to use on, on the internet, to buy things over the other side of the world instantaneously, to transfer wealth uh, instantaneously at near zero costs. Like that is, that is a superstar currency right there that can do that because you just you can't do that with gold. You can't do that with uh, sovereign fiat currency. But with Bitcoin, you can. Um, and basically, you know, it uses this thing called cryptography. Cryptography is sort of like 
a digital lock and key, if you will. And so it is this very secure way of exchanging value. Um, what, one interesting thing about this digital world we live in is that things that are digital, they could be infinitely uh, reproducible, but Bitcoin can't. So we have created a limited supply of something that is digital. This is like a technological revolution right there. The technology underlying Bitcoin is so exciting that I would encourage people not to think of Bitcoin as a money. I would encourage them to think of it as a technology. The Bitcoin, the blockchain, which is the underlying foundation of the, the Bitcoin protocol, is revolutionary. And I think it is something that's going to be implemented in a whole bunch of different ways all across our lives that we don't even realize yet. So, yeah, in essence, that, that's how I would, I would define Bitcoin as this revolutionary technology um, that is this distributed network. I, a lot of people do talk about the decentralized nature of it, and I think that's very important to uh, mention. Bitcoin functions entirely as a distributed network, as a peer-to-peer -peer currency, which means that there is no... It's not a company. It's not like Bitcoin, the company, or there's not like a single person who owns the Bitcoin company and that they can be targeted and shut down or manipulated or they could manipulate the money supply. It's nothing like that. It's peer-to-peer -peer and there's no central hub. And it's distributed across, you know, infinite amount of computers across the world, uh, or it can be potentially. So that means that because there's no focal point, it's just a really, really safe way of, um, of this whole protocol operating because a single party can't be manipulated or coerced into doing something with your money supply. So that's why it's exciting for me. As well as that, it's, um, it's weightless, as you mentioned. It's not like something that's tangible. So that's you, it. you don't need some place to store it, like a, a retail bank. And these yeah. retail banks, with our own money, have created a you might call a fictitious larger sum of money in their ledgers and they may lend it out or be a little bit reckless with a Bitcoin. Once it passes from one person to another or one entity to another, there's nothing more created. It's just that actual transaction that's occurred. That's right, yeah. I think fractional reserve banking is an, a separate issue that I mean we could talk about for yeah. hours and hours. Um, but... With Bitcoin, it, it is really great knowing that you are taking back control of your money. Exactly. Um, I, I recently had a situation where I tried to wire money from my uh, Australian bank account into my Bitstamp account, and, um, and my bank account denied it. They denied the transaction. Um, and I was, you know, I was really shocked at this, and I gave them a call, and I said, listen, what's going on? I want to transfer this money to this other account. And they wouldn't let me because they said they don't deal in Bitcoins. And that means that as long as my money stays in a, central, in, a, um, in a large bank, as long as my money stays within an organization that can be easily coerced by government or can play by its own rules, I don't have control over my own money. Um, and that's a scary thought. So my, my instinct is to get my money out of that system as fast as I can mm -hmm. so that I can regain the control over where I want to spend my own money. I think that's really important. There's obviously a conflict of interest with government and retail banks. Oh, definitely. They need to feed currency in order to operate and maybe have control over the dollar value and people's future purchasing power, which actually diminishes over time. It's almost right. like another form of tax. That's it. Well, I mean, it's definitely inflation is a secret tax yeah. that the government doesn't need approval for. The government had to use coercion in order to make people use fiat dollars because there's absolutely no sane reason why any person should accept money from someone that they know is going to be worth less the next day. I mean, it's like it's the, possibly the biggest scam ever created.
So it's, it's just a really, and I know that you know, Eric Voorhees has written extensively on this. He's a great resource to go to about not only uh, understanding what money is, but also what, understanding Bitcoin. So I'd really recommend that you look up some of his writings. I've read a, a, quite a bit on Bitcoin, and I've seen a lot of criticism out there, especially with the, the price falling over uh, a certain, you know, from a high of something like $1,200 down to a current level of, it's about $375 today as we speak. Right. Why did you put your neck out on the line? in terms of being a becoming synonymous with bitcoins <laughs> you, you go by the name bitcoin girl which is uh, fantastic and we might talk a little bit about that in a second but why did you put your neck out on the line well i mean I, it was very much principle based for me i i really believe in this technology i believe that it has the power to completely revolutionize society to really take apart some of these corrupt institutions that have started to gain more and more control over our lives so for me advocating being a bitcoin advocate it's not me saying I believe that Bitcoin is going to succeed. It's me saying that you should take note of this technology because this is going to solve a whole bunch of our problems. Whether or not people take uh, up the cause, I mean, that that's, remains to be seen. But the technology is here and the technology is revolutionary. The techno this technology has the ability to bring people out of po poverty. There are 2.5 billion people in the world um, that are unbankable. And that's really a conservative uh, estimate, which means that they have absolutely no access to credit. They have no access uh, to our traditional financial institutions. And with Bitcoin, we've suddenly added 2.5 billion people to the global marketplace. That's really exciting to me. And I, I really believe in this technology. But furthermore, you know, I believe in a person's right to financial privacy. That is a huge issue for me. You look at just a couple of months ago where JP Morgan, someone yet again hacked their accounts, which means that all of this information that they've declared they have to get from their consumers, know your customer laws, all of this private information can be used by these hackers uh, for identity fraud. And identity fraud is a billion dollar industry. So with Bitcoin, you don't need to give away any of this personal information. You can reclaim your right to financial privacy. And it, it, it can exist without government coercion. Another thing that happens when you have to give away all of your private details to these banks is you're trusting the banks not to misuse it. You're also trusting uh, whatever third parties they, they are employing not to misuse it. You're also trusting that they're putting a huge amount of, of their resources into fortifying their security in order to protect your information. This is a whole lot of trust going there. And as we've seen over and over again, they have failed. They have failed the people that they've been collecting this information from. So I believe in Bitcoin because it is a solution to this. It is a way for people to keep their financial privacy. A person should not be tracked by a government, you know, under the presumption that, that, <laughs> that the government has a right to know their every move. I believe in an individual's right to their own life and to live in secrecy unless, or to live in in privacy, I mean, unless they uh, do something to, to, to break the law, they do something to hurt someone, and then the government has the right to go into their details. But as the situation stands, it, the government gets access to all of our details. Uh, these companies get access to all of our details. These banks get access to all of our details. And I just believe that that's a, a scary situation to be in. You mentioned during that rant, okay, if you don't mind. Uh, Bitcoins, you mentioned Bitcoins are allowing up to two and a half billion unbanked people to, yeah. to enter into a system, kind of somewhat like a monetary system. And that's quite a, a positive thing. How is that going to be positive in terms of economic and social change? And where are those 2.5 people located? Right. Well, I, I look at 
countries like, you know, small African countries where basically in order to get a bank account, you have to show proof of residence. Now, if you have, if you're, if you're using land to show where, where you reside, but that contract, you know, the deeds for that land just don't exist because of whatever corrupt government is in control or whatever local arrangements they have, they just don't have the necessary documentation to, to prove they are who they say they are, which means that they can't open a bank account, they can't um, do any of this, which means they actually can't participate in the global economy. Now, what we're seeing at the moment is just incredible improvement in standard of living across the board, but more so in the countries where they're able to take advantage of the specialization across the world in different trades and global commerce. Um, you know, internet commerce is a huge thing. When you have people, like 2.5 billion people at minimum in the world who just don't have access to these things, it's going to be a while before they can improve their standard of living to the same extent that we've seen in the rest of the world. So it's those people that I would love to embrace and give them the opportunity to participate in this global commerce. And I think that Bitcoin is, is definitely an answer to this. In fact, Tim Draper, he bought the uh, Silk Road Bitcoins in the auction. And one of the reasons why he bought, uh, bought the Bitcoins, he said that he wanted to provide liquidity in third world markets. And I think that that is really admirable. He is going to take that, that those Bitcoins and set these people up with this sort of financial infrastructure that, that Bitcoin allows. I think that's a, a really big positive and we'll see an incredible flourishing um, unlike anything we've ever seen before. We're living in a, a technological revolution. They're both complementary in terms of infrastructure that's being created around it. Yeah, for um, sure. And there's going to be huge entrepreneurial startups just based around this technology. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If we can use this decentralized technology to decentralize other areas of society, to decentralize government, to decentralize contract law, so you don't need third-party intermediaries to prove sol solvency. You don't need third-party intermediaries to um, be arbiters of, of contracts. If you can do that all within technology, as is starting to be developed at the moment, I think that this is just going to make, like, it's just going to free up and, and smooth out all this, a lot of this friction that we have in society uh, at the moment where you have centralised figures who are open to coercion and manipulation. And once we can get rid of that and just rely on math to do this for us, I think we're going to be better off. I'm going to play devil's advocate here, if you don't mind. Sure thing. But I'm going to first counteract your argument in terms of the likes of JP Morgan and so on being susceptible to hackers. Hackers have actually hacked into accounts for Bitcoin holders. Mm -hmm. But my defense is that would possibly be due to a poor security system that the individual has on their own computer. So we're there and we're entrusting the likes of JP Morgan and other banks to hold on to our particular details because I've heard stories of Bitcoins being, I suppose, robbed from people's wallets. Right. Well, I or think. The first thing I'd say is that, you know, I, people have their handbags stolen as well. Uh, so that doesn't mean that the institution of handbags is flawed. It just means that they're, you know, it's, it's just as easy to steal a person's Bitcoin if you get, get access to the key as it is to get into someone's house if you get access to their key. It's very much the same issue. Um, the issue I have with JP Morgan is that they take all of your private information. So identity fraud can ruin a person's life, completely destroy a person's life. Now, when a person into my, bank, my Bitcoin account, first of all, it's up to me to decide how much I want to secure that. And there are incredibly secure ways that, that I, I can use to, to protect my Bitcoins. And a lot of people don't use that because they're lazy or they're uninformed or whatever. But there are definitely ways that you can, you can protect yourself. But the thing is, if someone 
hacks into my Bitcoin account, what they steal is just money at the end of the day. It's just money. There are no personal details attached to that money. There is no names, no phone numbers, no addresses, none of that. It's just just the, the ones and zeros, you know. If someone hacks into JP Morgan, they steal everything about me. Um, that is really, really scary. And I think that that is far more severe than, uh, than any, any Bitcoin hacking. And also, I mean, I think that it's a transfer of responsibility. So it's exactly what you said. When you're outsourcing the security to someone like, like JP Morgan, um, you know, you, you're trusting them that they're going to have the right security measures in place. And then they start demanding all of this information and it's like you have to further trust them. Okay, well, I really hope your security measures are good because this is a lot of information. Now, with Bitcoin, it's all up to you how you want to, to um, safeguard your property. So you can do paper wallets. You can uh, – there, there are a million different, different things that you can do. Um, I would say that Bitcoin security is definitely not perfect. It is far from perfect. But I think that Bitcoin entrepreneurs really realize this, and that's where you see the most part of the venture capital money, uh, the venture capital going to at the moment. It's being driven towards increasing security measures, really improving security infrastructure. I've opened up a, my own wallet and I can see the security system that takes place in order to access or log back into my account. They text you on your number and they send you um, a verification code that you need to access. Right. So we heard the story of Silk Road and so on, and that's where people... I think deposited their bitcoins, but now they have their own paper wallets that they actually have their own personal responsibility for holding onto their or managing their own bitcoin. To be honest, I, I think the media coverage about bitcoin is quite sensationalist. Oh um, goodness, yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> do, is it that the authorities actually fear the rise of this new currency and challenging the ex existence of fiat currency? I mean, I I don't want to get too conspiratorial and say that it's a big conspiracy to keep bitcoin down, because for the most part, I would say that people in government really don't understand it yet. So first of all, I would say that people fear change. They fear new technology. So that's always going to be an issue. I do think that clearly they have a vested interest, both the government and central banks, they have a vested interest in um, making Bitcoin obsolete. They, they really do. I mean, it's in their best interest to get rid of it. Whether they're outwardly trying to destroy it, I'm not, I'm not sure of that. But, I mean, the mainstream is media has just been, as you said, sensationalist. They are jump, jumping on every little thing that could create someone to click on, on their sites. Uh, as I say, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. So any bad news is good news for these, these media outlets. So that's all you really hear. You hear the bad news. You hear about the crashes and whatnot. Every second week, you know, someone else is putting out a report. It's usually Paul Krugman uh, that says, well, Bitcoin's finally dead. It's like... Bitcoin, what? Are you, are you serious? Bitcoin is worth $375. This thing that, you know, five years ago was, was worth less than pennies, yeah. and now it's worth $375 per Bitcoin. That is huge. That is not the death of this cryptocurrency. That is insanely amazing. That is incredible, incredibly positive turn of events. I, I think we need to look more to the positive, look more to the inspiring entrepreneurs in this startup community, in the Bitcoin community. Um, there are going to be scammers. There are going to be people you have to watch out for, uh, just as there are in any industry. And uh, I think you do first need to recognize that this is an incredibly prosperous flourishing of an industry. I mean, for example, one thing that I do want to point out is that this is an industry that has just created an entirely new market of jobs. Before Bitcoin came along, uh, these people 
probably wouldn't have been doing finance or doing exchanges for some bank. Uh, but the fact that they're now doing it for Bitcoin means that we've invented these new jobs. This is incredible for society. All of these jobs that are being uh, created, all of this incredible demand that has been created by the market. If anything, Bitcoin has, has just been an incredible positive effect on, on, on society. It's been an incredibly positive tool. And one huge positive effect it has on society was the video that you created. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I have to say, that just put a huge smile on my face. Uh, I'm glad you liked it. Absolutely clever. It was, it, was a, it was really good fun. I, I made that with the Moving Picture Institute. We were very interested in supporting films that promote freedom and freedom of the money supply is a really important issue. You know, whoever has the money, control of the money supply has all of the power in a society. So this video, it's sort of like, you, if you, we, we tried to use Bitcoin as a hook to get people interested in monetary policy. If we can explain to them the foundations of money and monetary policy, I think that it would be an incredible leap in the understanding of, of um, society about economics in general. And that's huge. You know, economics is so important, but understanding the money supply is so important as well. So it was a very fun Bitcoin. Uh, it was a very fun video. First of all, sort of trying to give the PR of Bitcoin an overhaul, make it seem fun and lighthearted, which I think it is. Um, but also to see if we can educate them about finite supply versus inflationary currency, etc. Fantastic educational tool. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think we've got, we've got some more projects to come. So please do check out uh, the mpi.org. Well, the I'm, I'm subscribed on your YouTube channel, so I'll be oh, looking out for all of this. And I, I've shared that multiple times and got reshares and everything. So, so it's, a, it's a fantastic. I think it has over nearly, I don't know, 40,000, maybe 50,000 shares. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It sort of it blew up. On the first day, we had like 20,000 views um, after release. So it really got spread quickly. So I'm hoping to, to do some more videos and see if we can just really increase our outreach to get more people curious about understanding and exploring bitcoin a little more we'll put a link to that youtube video on my <laughs> uh, show notes page thanks so much you, you were talking just before that again about government interference and we see that really with a lot of technological innovations for example uber and airbnb and they're being targeted by regulators to try to kind of create a, some kind of overhaul and to prevent some free market economics developing in right. this particular market so again Bitcoin is actually falling into this particular over-regulation in the marketplace, preventing it to freely develop without any third-party interference. Right, so it's, right. It'll be quite interesting to see what the developments are going to be for this in the near future. Right. Well, I mean, I, I one of the interesting things about Bitcoin is that unlike, you know, e-gold and um, e-cash and all of these companies that have existed in the, in the past um, that have tried to, you know, be a... Uh, different form, alternative form of, of currency. They've all been shut down by government because they've had a central focal point, because they've had some sort of company behind it. Now, what's interesting about Bitcoin is that the government can only ever pressure the actual companies around it, the third-party institutions. The Bitcoin protocol itself will remain untouchable because the government has absolutely no way to control it, to manipulate it, because it's decentralized. You know, they unless they have access to every single 
computer in the world that may operate a Bitcoin node, they have no way to shut this down. So Bitcoin, the, the technology will continue no matter what. It's just a matter of seeing whether or not the, com- the companies surrounding it, the third parties, will be able to flourish in the same way that we've seen early internet companies flourish. One thing about Airbnb and Uber, I, um, I mean, I love those uh, companies. I think that's, it's just genius what they've done. Um, and you know what? Now that we have this decentralized technology, this uh, cryptographic decentralization, we may see that being applied to things like you know homestays and ride sharing. If we can find a way to decentralize Uber so that there's no longer a single company operating it, uh, in the same way that um, Bitcoin addresses are verified, et cetera, et cetera, um, then again we would have created another thing that the government won't be able to touch because there is no one running it. You know, it's, it's a whole bunch of people running it sim- simultaneously. So I think that's the future, seeing more and more decentralized technologies. And it's what one of the Austrian economists, Karl Menger, had pointed out. He lived between 1840 and 1921. He, I'm just quoting him here. Money is not the invention of the state and it's not the product of a legislative act. Yeah, it's, actually, yeah, exactly. uh, it's independent of the power of the state and it's like that, it's just like a free market economy and let something develop because we know with government interference there's always a disequilibrium if you want to use an economic term which is not a, an efficient outcome at all regarding definitely, the market definitely, uh, it's definitely biased towards over-regulation always because government is always inclined to do something and they rarely see uh, the, the negative externalities of their decisions, the unintended consequences as I read about. I have a question from a person who reached out to me on my Facebook page. He was aware that I was interviewing you. He's from Texas, Hector Avianita. He was actually a previous guest of mine. 2014 has seen a fall in the value of Bitcoin. And what do you attribute to this decline? And do you see this as a buying opportunity? <laughs> well, I think that... Um, I'm always going to see a decrease in the price of Bitcoin as a buying opportunity. Um, I'm not giving out investment advice, but I definitely do take advantage of this. I see Bitcoin as a technology that is going to be around for a very long time. And because of the incredibly, the, the incredibly powerful potential behind this technology, um, I only see an increase in the number of com- companies who will start to implement it. So for me, it's always a buying opportunity. In terms of the uh, decline, there are always a bunch of reasons. I mean, we've actually seen every crash in Bitcoin directly related to some sort of government announcement, which goes to show you, you know, even in, in Bitcoin, that operates purely by supply and demand to, for, for price, for finding the price. You, you still see that it has an incredible effect on it. So every time, you know, when every time Russia bans it, then price drops. Every time China bans it again and again, <laughs> you see a decline. Um, when Janet Yellen speaks, you see a decline. You see that affecting stocks as well. You know, every time the, the recently when, when Japan just announced, yeah, our economy is terrible. And as soon as they announced that, their stocks just rose. All their index funds uh, rose because, you know, money, they knew that, that money was just going to be uh, injected in more quantitative easing into the economy. So the price of these things are always going to be affected by different announcements, official announcements that take place. And it's almost proof that it's seen as a valid asset, really, because they're susceptible and not immune to all of these external shocks. Exactly. Like you know, gold. no one talk, like people are talking about the price of gold had reached two thousand dollars, and it's currently at about twelve hundred and fifty. Right. So. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, as I said, like it is guaranteed that that your US dollars are going to be worth less tomorrow. Bitcoin, you know, they might be worth. 
10 times the amount tomorrow. You don't know. I'm, I'm willing to take that risk because I feel that I'm empowered using Bitcoin. It's something that I can use with my own volition and it gives me back a huge amount of my freedom, my financial freedom. So I, that, that for me, it's a no-brainer and I don't even need to worry about the volatility of Bitcoin. I, I think I'll continue to use it um, regardless. And prices will fluctuate a, a, accordingly. One of the factors that I believe has contributed to the recent decline from $1,200 down to 375 I think anyways, the fact that there are more and more retail outlets, companies that are willing to accept Bitcoin, buyers or people who actually hold Bitcoin able to uh, make purchases. So once you once hoarding takes place, like the way go, uh, someone might hoard gold and is not willing to sell it, then you have uh, a spike in prices. And yeah, it's the definitely. same with stocks. And once, once these outlets are... And made available because we're seeing a lot of these AT, I think they're called ATMs, uh, where you can actually buy Bitcoin with cash. Coffee shops are accepting Bitcoins. I think PayPal, maybe Dell. I could be wrong. So all of these uh, outlets are allowing the money to be freely bought and sold and transacted within the marketplace, and it becomes more liquid. I think. Yeah, definitely. As more people enter the marketplace, uh, it is going to increase liquidity. Um, you know, arbitrage between different exchanges is also going to even out price spikes. But really, most of the settling of, of price is going to occur from liquidity, increased liquidity in the market. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? Satoshi Nakamoto, he, he released this, this white paper under this pseudonym of Satoshi. Um, that was basically on a, on a cypherpunk mailing list and introduced it to the world and said, go play. So it's, he's sort of become just this, this figurehead, this elusive figurehead. I don't think we'll ever really know who this person is. I hope we don't because one of the great things about this being a pseudonym is that, again, there's no central target point for people to vilify or to coerce or anything. I, I really like the idea that we don't know who this person is. It makes this whole creation just seem a little bit more mystical and uh, miraculous. So I, I enjoy it. <laughs> you have a number of projects going on in your life at the moment. I'd like to talk to you about it, if you don't mind. Sure. You have a, what looks like a fantastic film. I've seen some, a trailer for it called Subconscious. That's right, yeah. No, that was a film that we shot in summer last year, in 2013, on board a... Belaya class World War II diesel submarine, and it was so much fun. It's called Subconscious, and it's yeah, it was an absolute blast. You're you're actually an executive producer, but you also play Ficky Chambers, the research assistant to Peter Williams. That's um, correct, I do. What's the plot to the movie? If you don't want to spoil okay. it, that's fine. I know it's been released on the third of November worldwide. It's a sci-fi thriller. Basically, uh, there's a professor, um, a history professor, and he's taken it on himself to uncover. What sort of mystery shrouds uh, this particular night, you know, August 13th, 1943? So essentially the story is about him delving into all of this uh, government cover-ups and uh, trying to get to the bottom of what actually was his, the disappearance of his grandfather. So he becomes obsessed with the disappearance of his grandfather. He does, does all of this research. He gets kicked out of his uh, professorship. Then suddenly he gets invited by the Navy to explore the submarine that is the central focal point for all of this mystery. So the story unfolds on board the submarine, and we find out all this information and hopefully at the end of it uncover the mystery of, of what happened to his, his grandfather in that, that night all those years ago. Oh, I have to watch it now. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty fun. It's the director, Georgie Hilton, was just an absolute blast. And I'm involved with another project uh, with her at the moment. 
through the Moving Picture Institute. So we're, um, we're exploring a sort of joint project at the moment. Nothing's, nothing's concrete, but it's definitely exciting, the prospect of working with her again, because she's been a huge influence on me and a huge mentor to me, taught me a whole bunch about the business of filmmaking, not just the artistry behind it. So she's just, yeah, she's a blast. Uh, even like your, the, some of the videos that you have for the Moving Picture Institute and also for Reason TV. Right. Uh, documenting events Again, like Bitcoin and other things as well that you're actually bringing to us and educating us on a lot of a lot of these aspects in finance and economics. Yeah, I hope that this sort of provides a, a bridge for people who don't really understand these issues and those who are very economically and technologically literate. I, I hope to provide that sort of a bridge through videos because I think it's a very ing- engaging format. Can you share with our listeners one of your personal habits that you strongly believe contributes to how you get things done? Oh, gosh. I, I, I want to find out the secret here. <laughs> You know what? I'm really lucky to be surrounded by such amazing and inspiring people. I think that's the key for me. I get a lot of my inspiration from other people. People like Georgia, the staff at the Moving Picture Institute, um, all of these people in my life, like Gene Epstein, all these people who just work really hard and who are so excited about life. So when I'm surrounded by people like that, I can't help but, but feed off their own excitement and want to push myself further. So I would say just... Find people who you find really inspirational and learn as much as you can from them. Do you have a favorite internet resource that you can share with our economic rockstar listeners? Oh, gosh. I mean, my favorite resource at the moment would probably be liberty.me. I've been working with them quite closely and really been involved with... I've just been exploring their site. So it's 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 a platform that provides an umbrella for all people interested in economics, in freedom, uh, in Bitcoin, and it provides all these free books. You have online lectures by incredibly well-renowned lecturers, professors, all this free content that's available to you there. So I I would check out liberty.me if if you haven't already, because I'm I'm having a blast being involved with them at the moment. Do you have any favorite book or any recommended books to share with us? Um, um, so apart from, you know, the, the Hayek and the Rothbard, I, recently I know uh, Steve Forbes put out a book called Money. That's a really great introduction to what money is. Uh, John Allison's put out a book recently, and that's just another great insight into the um, economic crisis. They're, they're two resources that I, I would really encourage people to, to read. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or any tablet or PC. This is a fantastic way to get through a book while on the go. Choose any book for free. Who says there's no such thing as a free lunch? I recommend a great economics book to get you started called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Right now, I'm listening to Tony Robbins' new book, Money Master the Game, Seven Simple Steps to Financial Freedom. So get a book like this for free at audibletrial.com slash economicrockstar. Remember, the E and the R for Economic Rockstar are capital letters. Do you feel it's important for people to study economics? I find economics really fascinating. I know that it's really dry to a lot of people, and it used to be very dry to me. But the more I've learned about it, the more fascinated 
I become by it. So if there's a way that I can engage other people in discussing economics, that would be, you know, an amazing goal for me to achieve. That's sort of my, my aim, to engage people in lively discussions about economics and to get them interested in the subject because it's just so important for a really strong foundation in society that people become economically literate. I totally agree with you, Darren. That's, that's why I've created this resource, developing this podcast, to speak to people like yourself, to put it out there to our listeners and maybe give them some exposure if they'd never had the exposure to economics. Look at it in a a different way rather than maybe the textbook or academia approach if that doesn't suit them. At least it's somewhat digestible and again, some of your resources are quite educational and entertaining at the same time. Yeah, well, I mean, if for more sources like that, definitely go to the Moving Picture Institute's website, thempi.org. They have this great series called Econ Pop, and I believe you've had someone on your show, uh, Andrew Heaton, who was involved with that. Uh, that's a, a fantastic show that really looks at pop culture and analyzes the economics that, that underlies some of our favorite films. There are a bunch of really great films by the MPI. They're all listed on their website. Great for any movie night, great for your own personal education. These are fantastic resources and really entertaining as well. We sort of specialise in storytelling. So if you're, if you're bored one night and want, want a good film, just head to the MPI's website and, and choose any one of those and, and I think you'll have a really enjoyable night. Fantastic. And one question I was going to ask you actually was, do you have any books in the pipeline? Because I'd be very, very interested to see what you'd actually produce there. I, any books in the pipeline? Yeah. I actually do, uh, oh. but I can't mention too much oh. about it. I thought we might have the breaking news story here. <laughs> well, you you are the first uh, first person to, to ask me that question, so um, you are the first person to get the answer. When it's it's further down the line, I would love to come back on and, and chat about it, and yeah. in the meantime, just know that there is something really fun coming out. That's soon. what I was going to ask you. Was it fun or serious? <laughs> it, it is fun and academic, so I try to always incorporate a little bit of both. Well, that's what you want. And yeah, that's what actually what Andrew Heaton had done as well. Very, very enjoyable. Yeah, have you? Um, I, I've read several of his books, but my favourite is "Laughter Is Better Than Communism." It's yes. uh, very, very funny. I've read it. It's fantastic. <laughs> what one takeaway do you want our listeners to leave with that can improve their appreciation of economics? I think that a lot of people who don't have an interest in economics and who, in particular, instinctually are against the Austrian school. One thing I would want them to uh, really come away with is that economics is just an incredible way of helping the less fortunate areas of society, of helping people out of poverty, of helping the unrepresented, people being persecuted by government. I think that economics, if you really understand it, it provides all of these answers. So I I would really encourage people to explore economics more, explore some of the the, uh, Austrian economists I've mentioned, uh, because I think that you too will gain an incredible appreciation of these people, of their research, and it will give you ever more tools for helping people in your life that you care about. Economics is a really important foundation for dealing with people. And once you have a good grasp of economics, you can do so much good in the world. So I I would love people to appreciate economics a little more uh, for its ability to help people. Exactly. And, you know, it's always good to be exposed to other schools of thought in economics, not only Austrian, but if you don't agree with those principles, maybe maybe do delve into some of those books, but also look at the other books. And, you know, it's all about a subjective observation or interpretation, really, at the end of the day, and how you actually how your attitude is actually moulded and does it suit these particular schools of thought. 
Right. And personally, I was always taught Keynesian economics in university, but you know, I was first exposed to Hayek when I was doing a master's in economics, and I actually loved what I actually read. Yeah, know, no, so. I started out studying Keynesian economics, and um, there was just so many contradictions in it. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the difference, contradictions between macro and micro, I never really could make sense of it. And it's only since I've studied Austrian economics that I've realized how flawed the Keynesian school is. And um, there are a bunch of, like, Hunter Lewis wrote a great book called Where Keynes Went Wrong which looks at all of the good things that Keynes said, but then all of the things that have been popularized, which can actually be very damaging in a society. So that's another book that I'd, I'd recommend. Great. Naomi, you have absolutely been brilliant. And <laughs> yeah, I had, I had a, a great laugh now with you, to be honest. <laughs> thank you so much, Frank. This has been fun. Yeah, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on the Economic Rockstar. I thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a lot from you. Okay. Share with our listeners once more where they could find you. Uh, they could find me at naomibrockwell.com or at bitcoingirl.org, or check out uh, my organization, the organization I work for, uh, the Moving Picture Institute, at thempi.org. And you can find all the links and resources mentioned by Naomi on economicrockstar.com. Fantastic. Naomi, you are an economic rockstar. <laughs> Thank you for okay. being so generous with your time, and I'm going to put you on a spot, if you don't mind. Sure. Do you want to sing us out? Sing us out? It's a terrible idea. Is it? <laughs> The show is over. <laughs> Everyone go. We have ended. I don't know what to say. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Absolutely. <laughs> Bye. Lovely chatting with you, Frank. Bye.